0: Well, if you would, take your Bibles and open the book of Nehemiah in chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. Uh, if you're first time visiting with us, again, welcome as Dalton has already welcomed you. We're glad you're here. My name's Philip. I get to be one of the pastors here at the church. This summer, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah together consecutively. And so we're, that's why we're in chapter 10 this morning. Seeing again expectantly that God has things for us here. And ready to receive from him what he has for us. So we're in Nehemiah 10. If you've been following along. We have been following the story of exiled Israel. Returning to Jerusalem after a long period of being away. They've been out of the land that God had promised to them. Because of their own decision to leave God. And so God allowed them. Or God brought them to a time of discipline. Where they were away. And But now this This book tells us the story of him bringing them back. But they're not back back. They're still, as we found out last week, under foreign rule and power. They're under the rule of Persia. So they're still kind of exiles at home. And there's really nothing they can do about it. Except pray. Which they do and did as we saw in chapter 9. Look at chapter 9 verse 32. Now, therefore, they pray, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. And then look down at verse 36. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. So that's where we pick up with with this nation, Israel, this morning. Back kind of at home, but still in exile. If you're new to the Bible and you want to follow along this story as we go through it, you can actually find this passage in that blue Bible in front of you on page number 406. 406 as we pick up the story together and see what God has to teach us. So as we turn into Nehemiah 10, the people are waiting for God to fully rescue them from their exile. But as we'll see, just because they're waiting, that doesn't mean they don't do anything. What they've been learning from reading God's word together is that there are some changes that need to begin right away even as they wait on God to change their circumstances. And so, they make a covenant, a commitment, a promise between themselves and God. Look at chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document, on the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And the rest of chapter 10 will outline what the covenant was. It's a formal commitment that they will pursue change in themselves. We're going to enter this study in this chapter from the perspective of the exile. Our perspective as Christians. Who, like Israel, are waiting on God to change things around us. The entire letter of First Peter in the New Testament describes followers of Christ as exiles, sojourners in a land that is not our home. And so we naturally have this dissonant feeling that the way things are are not the way things should be. But our exile this morning is not going to be the main focus, but a way to help us see the other similarity between us and Israel in Nehemiah 10. That we have an opportunity now, while we wait for God to change things around us, to pursue God's change in us. That's going to be basically our outline this morning. Three things. Three things. Our change. Secondly, what needs to keep changing. And third, how we will change. How we will change. Our change, what needs to keep changing, and how we will change. So we'll begin with our change. I am not going to endeavor to read chapter 10, verse 1 through 27. Uh, But here, let me just summarize. This is a list of names, obviously. And it is meant to be a summary of all the people. And as you get into 28 and 29, it continues. So these are names beginning with the ruler, Nehemiah the governor, working its way through priests, other nobles, officials, major family names in the community. And then in verse 28, you get the rest, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, of the Lord our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. This is a collective, all-encompassing covenant and promise. All the people, not just the leaders, but all the people. And you see that emphasized through this whole chapter. If you were to circle in your Bible every place it says we or our, you'd have ink all over this page. How easy would it have been for Israel to complain to God about all the things that weren't changing? That they weren't free from foreign rule. Things were not quickly returning now that they're back to the glory days enemies weren't leaving them alone. Their leadership had gotten them into this mess. But that's not how they react. In spite of all that they felt needed to change around them, they do not get stuck there. The main thing they see needing change is themselves. To be willing To have our attention turned from what needs to change outside of us to accept instead what needs to change inside us, that's a step of humility and faith. It's a step of humility because we are, in doing that, agreeing that our issues are a higher priority for our attention than our neighbor's issues. In other words... We are saying in making that step that I need as much help as if not more than the world that I live in. If you came this morning desperate for change. We we hope you find people here to connect with this morning who are obviously just as desperate for change as you are. You might see pretty faces You might hear pretty voices singing, but we, I assure you, have got our issues. We have even bigger problems than leaky pipes that you confronted on the way in the door in the back. We all need Jesus to change us. Admitting that is not just a step of humility, it's a step of faith. To turn our attention away from all the problems in this world that we're afraid of, worried about, upset over. To instead focus on our own problems. That requires believing that God has a plan for all that other stuff. Changing everything else is not our responsibility. Okay, am I advocating and making that statement? That the church be a place that sticks its head in the sand and ignores the problems of our society. Absolutely not. But I am suggesting that the way you and I begin to make a difference in this world is to begin by seeing that we are part of that world. The same thing the world needs is what we need when we grasp our need of God to change us, we will then be ready and prepared to engage with the world around us in an empathetic evangelism. So if you'd like a quick at-home test of your spiritual maturity today, take an inventory of what you think most needs to change in this world. Think about culture, think about politics, think about laws and institutions, foreign policy. Think about your marriage. Think about your family. Think about your job. Make a list. Here's the test. What comes out at the top of that list? What is the most important thing in your mind that needs to change? If it's anything but ourselves, we still have a lot of growing to do. A sign of spiritual youth is how much we focus on what outside of us needs to change. A sign of spiritual growth is how committed we are to pursue the change we need. Ourselves. So I just want to release the pressure and say it is okay that we never become a church that has all its stuff together. That's not a good ambition. It's better than okay that we are never a church that has all its stuff together. It's just simply true that we're never going to be a church that has all its stuff together. Yes, we endeavor and want and pray God make us faithful, but faithful is not perfect. If it was, we wouldn't need Jesus. And oh, how we need Jesus. We will know we are owning our need to change when we freely confess to God and each other where we are broken and where we have fallen. Where am I broken? Well, I know I'm broken because in this area, that I see a sinful tendency in my heart to judge people who keep opening up about things they're limping along in, things they're struggling with. I judge them instead of moving towards them and wanting to see God's grace given to them and help them as it has helped me and I trust is still helping me in areas I so badly need and am limping along in. So I want that to change about me. As long as I carry a judgmental spirit toward my brother and my sister, I'm not helping us change. No one needs me and you as their ultimate judge. God is enough of a judge for all of us. And a better one at that. We need each other to remind and encourage us that God the judge brought his judgment down on his son. In order to be just against our sin. And to justify sinners like us and make us righteous. So when we talk about change. We begin with us. Our change. That's number one. Secondly, what needs to keep changing? Now, I phrase this point this way deliberately to set expectations. Change is an ongoing process in our life. It is not something God expects we will set out to do this morning after we hear the sermon and then finish this afternoon. So if you're discouraged by how little you've changed, take God's patient view with you. And those who know God in Christ, Scripture promises in Philippians 1 that he who began a good work in Christ will carry on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There is a whole lot of time between the beginning and the end. And God will use every part of it deliberately and intentionally. But if we do recognize we've stopped changing kind of altogether, a really slowed. Slowed down in that process like Israel had for such a long time. This is all a gentle nudge to consider that to be a Christian is to welcome God's process of change. Romans chapter 12 verse 1 and 2 says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be changed, transformed By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in talking about change, as many people do, we could make this word change so generic as to be unhelpful to us in our daily life of change. So, thankfully, we have Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10 gives us Israel's example. Of two particular areas to focus on in our change. What needs to keep changing? One is our distinctiveness from the world. And the second is our dedication to God. Our distinctiveness from the world and our dedication to God. Look at the the call to change and the move to change that Israel makes in verse 30 and 31 to be distinct from the world. Start reading verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or to take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now you got to know that, that they're thinking about God's law here. And so the things that they're moving towards to change are all stipulated in how God had called them to live as his separate and distinct people. And, and they're keying in on, we assume, I think it's good to assume, some major priorities that are, they're alerted to. Wow, this is way out of accord with God's law. And so we're focusing in on that and pursuing change along with wanting to be faithful to God's law as a whole. You see, if you put the average Israelite in a crowd of other Persian kingdom subjects, you might have been able to tell they were different by their looks or how they dressed, but not by their behavior before now this was a problem because god had chosen them as a people who were to be set apart for him people whose lives and obedience to his law would make them stick out culturally so they weren't to intermarry with other nations not for racial reasons but for religious ones to protect them from allowing their allegiances to shift to foreign false gods that weren't gods at all They weren't to work one day out of every seven in order to show that they could trust God for their provision more than their own work. They weren't to charge interest when they lended money to show that making money was not their M.O. as a people. Helping and loving people was. They were to let their land rest from agriculture every seven years as a way to communicate that God is a God who leads his people to find their rest in him ultimately. Ultimately. So as the people heard God's word and his design for the distinctiveness of his people, they were realizing they were completely indistinct and that needed to change. We talk about this in our lives as Christians. I want to make sure that we understand distinctiveness for God is not meant to be worn by us as a badge of personal honor. Kind of like the Pharisees thought it was. You know, how they go around to remind everyone how they weren't distinct enough because they didn't pray long enough. Or other people didn't give enough. Or other people didn't, like them, obey enough laws. Distinctiveness is kind of just the, the natural outflow of a commitment to be faithful to God no matter what other people are doing. It's just the natural outflow of a commitment to be faithful to God no matter what other people are doing. So for some of us, this faithfulness will mean we need to go more against the grain of our culture. Like Israel, we'll need to investigate our relationships. Are we getting invested romantically or otherwise with people who do not share our faith in Jesus Christ to a way that would blur the lines that are meant to be distinct? Or our priorities of business in our lives? Are we refusing to rest because rest doesn't turn a profit and so are becoming indistinct? What about the outcomes of our habits? Does the way we use our time contribute to us looking different or the same as the world we live in? Would your coworkers hear you talk about what you do and think their life is completely different from mine? Distinctiveness in this way is meant to communicate to people the goodness of God's design for his people. Which is, different, <laughs> which is different from communicating to people the badness of how they are not following God's design for all people. I'm going to say that again. Distinctiveness is meant to communicate to people the goodness of God's design for his people. Which is different from communicating to people the badness of how they are not following God's design for all people. The New Testament writers understand the way we go about this against-the-grain life is in quiet and peaceable ways, the opposite of loud and aggressive ways. I was reading the Sermon on the Mount this week in Matthew 5. And I was just struck by how Jesus outlines what it is to live a blessed life. And he he says all these things that you just would not think. Like to be poor in spirit. Or to be merciful. Go through and read Matthew 5 and see what things make that list that you might be surprised by. And, And then I caught it, which I hadn't before. At the end of the Beatitudes, the next thing Jesus says is, if salt... Stops being salty, it will become useless. In other words, Jesus is saying, by following these things I call blessed, to be merciful to people, to be a peacemaker in our communities, to be poor in spirit and to raise other interests before our own, Jesus says, that's the salt. That's what people are going to get a taste of and they're going to realize this is different. This is Jesus enfleshed in a person's life. I doubt it's going to be by the yard signs we put up. I doubt it's going to be by the posts we put on Twitter that get lost the second after they're made. No, it's going to be in the way of life that most depicts and models in a an tangible and in their personable way. What Jesus was like when he was here and continues to be. Our distinctiveness is meant to communicate the goodness of God to our world. It's not just about being culture warriors that go against the grain, but it is actually for the good of our culture. The church has been equipped to be demonstrators to others that life with God is good, even though culture claims it's bad. The church is positioned to show that a life of love for others is more joyful, more rewarding, more meaningful than a life of love for ourselves. In our determination to not let money be our God, the church reminds the world that there is someone so much better to live for than money. Have we been thinking about our distinctiveness that way? Have we we been thinking about it as a way to to be an opportunity to show good to the world? It can be so easy to slip into pride when we see that we're being or acting different from others. People do not need us to tell them all the ways they need to change. They need us to show them how good it is to welcome God's process of change in our life. And we got to be the people that they see that from. It's got to be evident to them that we want what is good for them. Because God is good not so that they can be quote unquote good like us. Church, let's seek to live against the grain of our culture, but also for the good of our culture, so that our community will see how good God is. The Israelites' pursuit of change altered their position in the world from being like the world to being more like God. And this pursuit of change also led them to be dedicated in a new and fresh way to worshiping God, which is the other way we need to keep changing. We need to keep changing to be dedicated to God, not just distinct from the world. Look at verse 32 through 39. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. And for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God, according to our father's houses, at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the firstfruits of our ground and the firstfruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord, also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Just by way of background, if you're totally unfamiliar with how the Israelites went about worshiping God, this is kind of an insight. There are different people set apart for that, like Levites who helped with that and priests who also did that. So that's what's being mentioned. And then the whole people were called to provide for that system through a, a giving of what they had for that. You see, worship was God's centerpiece for Israel's life. At the center of their city, there was a temple. At the center of the temple was where God brought his presence. The patterns and the calendars of their year and their whole national, national life kept them moving from outside in to God and where his presence was. So the produce and the cattle raised on the outside farmland would be brought into the city to be offered as sacrifice to God and to support the worship of God. Now we're we're meant to see that this, all of this new dedication to God's worship was going to be a radical shift for Israel. They were promising to return to God-centered worship from what they had been doing, making themselves... Or other things, the objects of worship. As the last phrase of the chapter indicates, a focus elsewhere had led to the the neglect of the worship of God. So now, Israel is committing to make God central to their lives again. They will think about money as God's, God's money. They will think about their possession as God's possessions. They will think about what is needed for the community to be able to worship God. And they will give to that. They will think about the natural center point of their lives as God. And God's, worshiping, God's worship, the organizing principle of their activity as a people. Notice how central the corporate worship of God was. Everyone understood that everyone was to be involved. Such a different picture, isn't it? Such a different picture than than the individualized approach to worship that says all we need is me and Jesus. It says something about God. It says something important about God. When one person decides they'll organize their personal life toward worship. It says so much more about God. When many people gather and organize their lives around others in worship to the God who gathered them. So church, members of this church, if I can talk to you for a second. Your committed involvement to the local church here is vital for our worship to God. That's for all of us. That's for members who are committed here or if you're visiting from another church and you're thinking about your involvement there. Or you're trying to figure out where to be a committed member of a church. Why is it so vital that you're committed for our worship Because the church is where God has made his dwelling in Christ. He chose to put himself at the center of his people. And unite himself to his body. If you want to be dedicated to worshiping God, you've got to come to church. Am I saying we can't or don't worship God in other parts of our lives? I'm not. Am I saying that by coming to church we earn God's favor? I'm not. But God's word is showing Us that when we gather with with God's people, we participate in a special way of worship that God has designed for us. For those of you who have committed yourself to this local group of Christ followers, thank you. Your dedication is providing me and others a tangible way where we can gather our lives around the organizing center of God and His worship. Thank you for being willing to keep changing. Thank you for not putting self and selfishness in such a place that it wins over your heart. You keep coming. You keep giving. You keep serving. Thank you for sacrificing out of what God has given you to provide for me and Mark to give our full-time attention to leading in worship. By your attendance, your involvement, your committed prayers, your constant care, you are encouraging the rest of us to see that the church is where we can change. The church is where we can grow and participate in whole life worship of God. So let's keep welcoming the fact that we need to keep changing. We need to keep changing our distinctiveness from the world, changing in our dedication to God's worship. And because of Jesus Christ, we can be comfortable owning where we need to keep changing. We don't need to be defensive about that. As a pastor in this church, I have a special opportunity to example that. By welcoming any of you to talk to me and other pastors about where you think we as a people need to grow in these ways. I got to have two conversations this week that helped me so much in leading and pastoring in those particular areas. I'm grateful for the people who came to tell me about it. And I would happily have more with you if you have other things. Our change needs to keep happening. How will that happen? Well, that's our last point. How will, how will we change? How we will change? And under this point, I want to highlight God's means of change. I'm going to repeat them in a second. So if you don't get them right now as I list them, don't worry. I'll go through them again. How we change, we change by God's means. Grace, truth, spirit, obedience, and each other. We change by grace. Grace makes change possible. Israel and their life together had just been, although we don't read about it in Nehemiah, we know because of their calendar, they'd just been rehearsing God's grace in their lives before this. They had only days before observed the annual Day of Atonement. That Chris read about in Hebrews 10. Where a sacrifice was made every year for the forgiveness of all the people. And a scapegoat was sent into the wilderness to remind them. that Through sacrifice, God's judgment for their sin would fall on another. On this very day that we're reading about here. They prayed that God would give grace again toward them. Give them grace to continue returning to him. Even though they knew they had continued time and time again to turn from him. Given how much turning they had done, and how much falling and coming back and falling again that they rehearsed in chapter nine, you might wonder why Israel would come back again, and again and again, and now be back again to seek to renew their covenant with God. Hadn't they learned they were a hopeless cause? Didn't they have enough evidence to conclude that they'd never get this right with with God on their own? Don't we all? <laughs> Their inherent sense of their own goodness is not what brings them back. It is God's grace. His reliable pattern of welcoming back any who come in confession, repentance, and seeking his change. That's what they're counting on. And grace, God's grace, his grace to us. That is the context where we can finally see the hope for change. Even if we've tried and failed a thousand times. We see this need for grace and how Israel's story goes from here. All the things they will set out to do in chapter 10 will stall out. The Old Testament will end and the New Testament will begin with this nation still in exile under foreign enemies. This old covenant could not bring the change they needed. But then Jesus came and made a new and better covenant, which Chris read about earlier. An agreement that he would be the one who stands in the place of the ritual sacrifice. He'd be the once and for all sacrifice. He would himself give his body on a tree to provide the final and full forgiveness for anyone who comes to him in faith. His righteousness traded for our sin through his own death. An arrangement where becoming aware of our sin and our need for his salvation, we give ourselves to him. And he doesn't reform us, he remakes us. He gives us new hearts with new desires and a new spirit in which to follow him. That's what you need to really change, friend. You need Christ to die for you. To rise in new life to give you the new life that you couldn't have outside of him. If you're desperate for change and have tried many places to find it, I hope you hear today the the place, the place to go, where you will find everlasting change better than any you've known in Jesus Christ our Savior. The grace of God in Jesus is our hope for change. This is an invitation to fall on the grace of Jesus. We begin our change when we repent of our sin and entrust ourselves to him and take us and make us different than we've been. So it's grace is how we'll change. But secondly, truth directs us to change. It was God's word that was effectively the compass that was guiding them back to God in this passage. You see it in verse 28 and 29. They heard his word read. They thought about it. They compared their ways to God's ways. And that became the catalyst that drove them back. They mention God's word as their reference point there. If we listen to the culture, we will told there's nothing there, there we will be told there is nothing about us that needs to change unless we want it to. Our hearts will often tell us different, maybe. I think about how we incessantly worry that we'll be found out and what we need to be won't be what we are. And we'll be ruined in the face of other people. And so we'll think maybe one of these days, instead of faking it, we'll finally change. And we'll be what we're proposing we are to other people. But sometimes our hearts can be proud and insist that it's everyone else who needs to change and not us. But God's word is reliable. And he'll tell it to us like it is. That we are not who we need to be. That sin has broken our chance at perfection. That we make messes all the time and we can't or won't clean them up. We stumble and fall in self-dependence and self-loathing and self-harm. God's truth tells us what we need to hear, that we need to change. And that he will gladly enter in that process of change with us and pursue it for us. Here's what may seem like a strange encouragement. Read your Bible in order to see where God wants you to change. When you open scripture, pray that God would reveal one thing to you in it that he wants to work on in you. Now, I do not intend this as a recipe for constant discouragement in your spiritual life. The opposite. I think this habit, if we... If we, if we pursue it, it's going to orient us to daily look to God as our reference point, not the world. To look to God as the standard, not our friends. To look to God as our help, not ourselves. And when we do that, we will see God answer. He will answer because you will see him changing you and conforming you to a better and truer way. How encouraging to watch God work directly out of your time with him in his word. What a boost would that be to your spiritual life? How can we be so confident that this will change us? Because this is how change happens with God. God points us to where we need change in his word. And then the next step in how we will change. The spirit. God's spirit brings the power to change us. Embedded in God's covenant agreement with Israel was a future promise for a spirit-empowered change. It's in Jeremiah 31. It's in Ezekiel 36. With the promise that God would give new hearts to his people. It's in Joel chapter 2. It's affirmed in Acts 2 when the spirit finally comes in power. What I'm saying is, is that if you and I and us are going to change in the ways that we need to, the spirit must do it. He leads us in change. He leads us in change. He wants us to have him identify what he wants to work on. And then he wants us to gladly follow that lead. We need him for this. Are we willing to entirely give ourselves over to the spirit's lead? Are we ready to say to the spirit, lead us truly where you want us to go? I got to confess to you. I turned 40 this week. That is not a subtle way to invite your birthday cards. I turned 40 this week. I am only just beginning to understand that much of my life I have tried to hold on to my opinion of where I need to be taken. And at best was happy only when God's spirit would affirm my own opinion. I am only just beginning to see that to invite the spirit to work is to surrender all attempts at control and listen and wait and watch for his direction we can try we can try to drive the car of our lives but there's no gas in that tank we can slam on the gas pedal as much as we want we can turn the wheel in the direction we want this thing to go but there's no engine under that hood god's spirit is is The power that changes us. But his spirit only goes in one direction. Using our lives. To bring the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor and glory. By changing us. To be like him. Jesus told the woman at the well. That the people he came to make through the gospel. Would worship him in spirit and in truth. Members I asked you at our last members meeting. Please be praying that our church would be praying for this. And I'm going to ask it again. That we would be a people built on God's word. Led by his spirit. And that God would let us see how he answers that prayer. In ways that bring him glory. Built on God's word. Led by his spirit. And that God would let us see how he answers that prayer. In ways that bring him glory. The next way we change is in obedience. Obedience. This is how we change. Obedience is our response to God's pursuit of change in us. Israel made the covenant as a way to formally commit to obedience through change. As we just saw, grace had to precede this or there would be no possibility for change. Where grace is active, obedience does follow. God had a point and a purpose for bringing forgiveness through Jesus Christ. He wanted to give us a new life of sanctification, of service to him, different from the old slavery to sin. But obedience to God will require commitment. Obedience will require commitment because the world, our flesh, and God's enemy all oppose us in this. To obey God is to go against every other major entity in our lives. Obedience doesn't happen by chance or accident. It's not the kind of thing we can set our hearts on cruise control and follow. Look at Israel's slide and be aware that the gravity of culture acts powerfully on the unexamined life. When we talked about where we need to change distinctiveness and dedication to God, what did God's spirit identify in your life? What needs to be different this week than last? What habit of sin needs to stop? What will you do about it? Are you willing to make a promise to God that you will pursue the change he says needs to happen? Are you willing to make a promise to God that you will pursue the change he says needs to happen in your life? Anything less reflects we aren't yet ready to obey. Make the promise. And let God know that you know you need him to be true in order to be faithful to your promise. You need his grace to help you in obeying. You need to know and be reaffirmed and helped that even if you don't obey, he will not stop forgiving us. But his grace does call us. To make every effort to love him. With all our hearts and our minds and our strength. Because this is what Christ has done for us. This is what Christ has done in us. Obedience is how we change. Lastly, together is the place for our change. From the rulers to the farmers, Israel pursued change as one people. They were distinct in roles. Everyone had a different part to play. They did it all together. And this is a shadow of what would come about through Christ here in this church. Jesus' body was broken, and his blood was poured out to make one new people, including some from ethnic Israel, but many from many other nations. This new people will be where Jesus comes to live. This new people will be where God goes to work on true and lasting change in the world. In the new covenant, Jesus' body, the church, becomes the context where his change occurs. God says we need him, and we need each other to change. I need you for my change. You need me. We need each other. This is happening all the time in our life. We are, in ways we probably don't even perceive, leaning on each other to be God's means in each other's lives for good change. So let's encourage each other in it. Let's talk about it. Let's talk openly and it not be weird when we say, Let me tell you what God is teaching me. Let's talk about how much we want to grow. Let's talk about how our perspective on life is shifting to be more about God. You don't got to be embarrassed by that. That's fuel for us. That might be a reason to just get together with somebody and say, hey, I want to get together with you, and, and I want it to be helpful to me. Just steer my attention every week think, God, what are you teaching me today? And I want to go talk to somebody and encourage them about that and hear what they have to say too. Remember, God intends to bring others into this process. It's not just us and him individually. And he intends to bring other people outside these walls into this process too. I trust there are other people in Kansas City that God wants to pursue change in. And he wants to use us as his people to help. So let's be wide open armed towards anybody who comes in here among us. Knowing that God may have the same purposes for them that he is graciously pursuing in us. While we remain as Christians in exile, we will feel many areas of this world that are groaning for change. Remember, God has a plan to change all of that. We sang about it a minute ago And the sands of time are sinking. We can wait on him to take care of changing everything around us. One day, God will bring his people to his place and change all things to right and good and true. And that will include us. And I wonder at that time what we will wonder at more. Will we wonder more at how much he changed everything else? Or how much he changed us? Either way, our joy in heaven will come from the fact that the God who never changes chose in his grace to change us to be like him. He will be the glory of the new land we enter when our exile here is done. So as we wait for him in all this, let's simply keep on asking him. To keep changing us. Let's pray. Would your process of change is, is not meant? for our frustration. It's, n- it's not meant for us to look at ourselves after this time in your word and go out discouraged because we're not where we need to be. God, we recognize that your process of change is a gracious invitation in Jesus Christ to become what we could not be without you. Lord God, having heard of how you pursue change in us, Lord, give and work in our hearts to accept this and receive it and pursue it. Give us grace in this. Give us truth in this. Your obedience in this. Give it to us, Lord. Give us a full measure of your spirit to empower this. And Lord, help us to turn to each other in the ways that we so need the people we've given us in this place To pursue the change that you are inviting us into. And Lord we do pray. We pray and we ask. We ask that we would be built on your truth. We ask that we would be led by your spirit. And we ask for the glory of your name. That we would be allowed to participate in. Your answer to that prayer. That we would get to see it here. As we welcome your change among us. And we welcome anyone who comes here. Needing your change as well. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.